Thank you, CJ. I chose to be here. Nobody forced me. He's a pretty <laughs> persuasive guy, but I really, really wanted to be here. And therefore, the opportunity arose, and I snatched it. And I'm thankful for it. I wanted to be here because I am excited about what what God is doing in this church plant. I've been following it from a distance, and I'm thrilled with what is in the offing here in the mix of this city. I'm excited to be here, secondly, because I love sovereign grace and what God is doing in it across the country and the world. And most emotionally significant, I'm, I'm glad to be here because CJ's right. He is my friend, and he has meant a lot to me over the years, both at the encouragement level of preaching and professional life, though nobody in the ministry is a professional, but even more at the personal family level of caring. So, real easy for me to stand here and be with you. It's what I want to do. And I said to him when I walked in, I'm pumped about this message. I love the Word of God. I love I loved to preach. And I love this book. And I'm going to talk about this book. Because it matters that this church plant relate to this book in a certain way. Think about it a certain way. Feel about it a certain way. And so let me read the text. So if you have your Bible... Let's go to 2 Timothy 3, and I'll read verses 14 to 17. 2 Timothy 3, then I'll pray after I read this and ask that God would do what C.J. said preaching is. 2 Timothy three fourteen. But, we'll come back and ask why the text begins with a but. But, as for you, Timothy, continue... In what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, Father, here we are now, under your word and carried by your spirit, I pray. Grant me to be faithful to the fullness of this text. It is a Remarkable text, a stunning text, a speech-stopping and speech-creating text. It is a mind-blowing text. It is an immeasurable text. So God, please help me. Help the listeners. They will need your help because of the nature of this transaction. 
So Holy Spirit, would you come? People are here this morning by appointment. And so manifest to them why they're here. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a shame in one sense that in our particular political environment, the word conservative and the word liberal are opposites. That's a sadness. Originally, the word conservative, one who conserves, meant don't throw away, don't waste, don't squander, hold on to, preserve, conserve, stay in. And that, of course, could be a terrible thing if you preserved and stayed in what is false and what is ugly, what is wrong. But what a beautiful thing it would be if you preserved and conserved and stayed in what is true and beautiful, good. The opposite of liberal, once upon a time, meant stingy, tight-fisted, uncharitable, small-souled. And so to be a liberal meant to be generous and free-handed. So before the present state of affairs that we're in linguistically, it was not only right, it was biblical to be both. You had to be both to be biblical once upon a time. To conserve and hold on to and stand in and not let go what was true, always true, what was always good, always beautiful, and out of that to be free-handed and large-hearted and generous, liberal, a spirit of liberality. They just always went together. So here at the beginning now of our text, Timothy is told to be conservative in this historic way, which is going to lead him to be liberal in the historical way. Verse 14, but as for you, continue in. Stay in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Continue in it. Stay in it. Remain in it. You learned something. You believed something. And I'm telling you, never, ever leave it. Stay there, Timothy. It's true. It's good. It's beautiful. It's life-giving. Don't leave it. Don't walk away from it, ever. Now, the reason there's a but at the beginning of the sentence in verse 14, but as for you, is because 
just before it in verse 13, there's another kind of person. And he's distinguishing Timothy from that kind of person who doesn't stay. Evil people, this is verse 13, evil people and impostors go on. They go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So that word for go on, prokopsusine, if you care, <laughs> Greek, that word is advance, be progressive. Now, there's a word that might or might not in our day be attractive, tends in my life to be unattractive, because it generally means verse 13. They went on, and they went on not into good and into beautiful and into true. They would leave in it. And he's saying to Timothy, but you, you don't be like that. These are the people in chapter 4, verse 4. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. They're described as people who have ears that are itching. You ever have, my dad grew up with an itching left ear. He would take his pencil. One time he got the eraser of an automatic pencil stuck in his ear. And I can always remember him going, and the sound. I do that all the time. And my left ear itches all the time. It's genetic. So this analogy is really relevant for me. But these people have itching ears in it. They want their ego scratched or their desires scratched. They're going to find a church in Louisville that will scratch their ears. And they're going to keep moving on and progressing until they've got some preacher that'll just scratch where they itch. You know, that's what I've always wanted to hear which could be a bad thing or a good thing if you have gospel itches or if you have ego itches and lust itches and mythological itches. But these folks are wandering away from the truth. They are progressing from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, Sovereign Grace, continue, remain, conserve what you have learned and have firmly believed. So, the main point of this text, verses 14 to 17, is verse 14. Everything else is an argument. Everything else is supporting verse 14. Timothy, conserve, stay, remain, be solid, be unshakable. Whatever comes, when I'm gone, stay. And, and then he's going to give reasons for that. And there are six of them here. Now if you wonder, what's the, what's the point of this message? I'll just tell you right out. Six reasons to believe the Bible. That's the point of this message. Because 
the truth that you have believed and in which you are standing, Timothy, is the truth of Scripture. That's going to become clear. He hasn't said it yet, but that's going to become clear. So the overall message that I'm bringing you is there are amazing reasons for standing with the Bible. Really strong, good, solid reasons. There are six of them in this text, and that's the substance of my, my sermon. So I'm going to go there, but before I go there and give you from the text six reasons for why this church and you as an individual and you as a head of household caring about your wife and children, if you're married, should care about standing there. It's where we stand as a family. This is who we are. We're Bible family. We're Bible people, Bible church. Before I go there with those six reasons, I want to reflect with you for two or three minutes on what's about to happen in your mind and heart because you need supernatural conviction, not just natural conviction. You need God given solidity in your head and heart, not just a human persuading you with some reasons. Now, if that's true, if you will only weather the cultural breakers that are coming over you by a supernaturally wrought conviction in your mind and persuasion in your heart, then why am I giving to your mind reasons? Rational Arguments. That, that's a really good question. So this could be a sermon, but I'm reducing it down to two or three minutes. I really want you to feel, why would you do that if, if, you need, if what we need? We should just have a prayer meeting. That the Holy Spirit would come and say to all of us, the Bible's true. Bang! You got a supernatural persuasion from the Holy Spirit. Let's go out and tell the truth. I don't think that's what we should do. I I wouldn't have been a preacher if I thought that's the way God ordinarily gave persuasions and convictions to his people. Look across the page, at least it is in my Bible, to chapter 2, verse 7. Where it says, Timothy, think over what I say to you. For God will give you, the Lord will give you understanding in everything. That's just a massive verse for me. Timothy, I'm talking to you. Think over what I say. God designed human beings to have a thinking organ. It's called a mind Think over what I say. I'm talking to you. I'm putting words together and phrases together in some logical order that has grammatical and syntactical structure called Greek. It's going into your ear, into your head. Do something with it. God just made it that way. You might have thought he made us another way. Don't need language. We just need impressions. Divine, solid, sure impressions, and that's all we need. No, that isn't all you need. Or he wouldn't have made you the way he made you, and he wouldn't have given you a B-O-O-K. So think. And then, and while you're thinking, and in the process of thinking, God will give you understanding. 
That's supernatural. It doesn't say you will get understanding through your unaided mental resources. It says God will give it to you. It's amazing. The supernatural and the natural meeting in the process of human reflection. So, when I come to this point in the sermon and I ask the Lord, how might I be used so that a supernatural conviction and solid persuasion concerning your word would be given to this church? The answer is Ask for my anointing and give them my reasons and tell them to think about them. Okay, that's what I'm up to. That's my two or three minute sermon about how God gives convictions you're willing to die for. He does not do an end run around thinking. So here come my six reasons which will become, God willing, more than rational information for you, but will be the kindling that inflames solid conviction. Number one, Timothy, Remain, continue in, be a conserving force in your church of God's truth because of who taught it to you. Verse 14, at the end of the verse, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Argument number one, the kind of Persons who taught you the truth are a very significant warrant for why you believe what you believe. Now, in Timothy's case, that's his mother and his grandmother probably in Paul's mind because it says in verse 15, how from... Chapter 1, verse 15, sorry. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. From childhood. Where'd you get that? His dad was a pagan. He didn't get it from his dad. We're told that in Acts. He got it from his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice. Verse 15, um, I'm sorry, verse 5 of chapter 1. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells as well in you. Here's the point. Part of Timothy's reasoning for why he should stay in the truth is the character of his mother and his grandmother. Uh, CJ may remember this, maybe a few of you will too, but here we are, wherever, wherever we are in the city here. The, we were at the Yum Center a few months ago and uh, T4G was there and I was on a panel about the scriptures and 
And Mark Dever turns to me with the microphone and says, So, John, why should these folks believe in the Bible? And I said, Because, or, no, he said, Why do you believe in the Bible? I said, Because my mother told me to. Everybody laughed. They laughed. I didn't laugh. I said, Everybody's laughing. <laughs> That's a funny way to start. That's a biblical argument. That, that's just what it says. <laughs> now, I'm not, I'm not completely naive. Um, there are terrible moms in the world who teach kids to believe the Quran and the Hindu scriptures and Ayn Rand as your God and your Bible. So I know this is not an infallible argument. Like any mom who teaches you anything, you should believe it. That's clearly not what he means. Paul's not stupid. What he means is, look at the kind of person who taught you this, knowing who it was. If you saw Lois and Eunice as pagan, selfish, wicked, self-serving people, you'd say, maybe I should rethink what they taught me. But if you look at your mom and your grandmother and you see in them the marks of God's hand on them, you better be very slow to throw away what they said. In other words, it is an argument not the only argument. It is one of the things. This is the way we come to our convictions in life. I mean, be real. You don't come to the convictions of your life by one or two infallible things that happen in your life. It's a whole array of influences that pour into your life, and you're assessing every one of them, and they begin to mount up with a divinely given yes to what you are learning because of kinds of reasons. This is one of them. So that's number one. Remember, Timothy, the from whom you learned these things. Number two, continue, Timothy, in what you received and believed because it has the marks of divine holiness on it. The scriptures have the marks of divine holiness. So here we are at verse 14 again. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you believe it. Now verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred, or in other word, holy writings. They are holy. They are sacred and holy. Don't forsake the scriptures because they bear the marks of the holiness of their author. They're called holy scriptures. Now you might use that phrase, holy Bibles, right there on my Bible. Holy Bible. And it's just a throwaway word for you. It's not a throwaway word for Paul. He doesn't throw away the word holy. He never says holy buckets or holy mackerel. I don't say it either, ever. I discourage that kind of use of sacred words. Holy should be one of the most sacred words in our vocabulary. Not to be too picky, okay? 
He doesn't throw away the word holy. When he says these writings are holy, it means they're godlike. They participate in, they partake of, they have marks of holiness about them. I was thinking this morning, just trying to just trying to figure out how to say this. It, if you stood in the presence of God Almighty more directly than we presently are, just there. And he, he said, I am holy. Or the angels and the seraphim above him said, holy, holy, holy. And you turned to me and said, what is it about him that's holy? I don't think I could answer you. Just look. This is God. Just look. This is God. God, give him eyes to see. This is God. It's, he's holy. He's different. He's in a class by himself. He is infinitely, transcendently, pure, distinct. He's just God, sui generis, in a class by himself. I can't quantify this for you. Just look. So Calvin talked about the Bible. So he made a book. He breathed the book out. And it's holy because it participates in that. And it's sometimes difficult to quantify and to isolate holinesses of the Bible. You can try. It'd probably be a good exercise to try. The one I thought of this morning, though it's always inadequate to try to do this, is to simply say that as I read the Bible, Old and New Testament, The way the Bible talks about me and about God are like no other book. Any other book or person that would talk about God's transcendence and God's majesty high and lifted up and down low with me and me, sinner deserving of hell, and lifted up to the heights is leaning on the Bible. Anything else that talks that way, they're leaning on the Bible. Because it's just so holy. So that's number two. He calls them sacred writings. They have marks of holiness or sacredness about them, which they get from God. Number three. Timothy, continue in what you have learned and believe because... The power of Scripture to save sinners. Verse 15, second half of the verse, but let's go ahead and read 14 and 15 again. Just get the flow. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing, here's the first argument, knowing from whom you learned it, and two, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred or holy writings, and now three, which are able. Tadunamena. Powerful, which are powerfully able to make you wise for salvation. Now, Paul would admit you got saved when either I, I don't know, I don't know when Timothy got saved. I don't know when the transaction with Jesus actually happened, either in the mouth of Paul or somebody 
in Lystra, his hometown, before Paul got there. But he's a disciple in, in verse 14, which means he's a follower of Jesus, not just an Old Testament saint. So somebody opened their mouth and spoke to him about Jesus. And of course, he believed in him. Why did he believe in him? Because the Bible made him wise unto that. The Bible made him wise. The the Bible has a power to get people ready to meet Jesus. The Bible has a power to expose sinfulness and reveal who we really are and create a sense of, of longing identity, emptiness and craving and aching that can only be satisfied by Jesus for the production of, of salvation. So it makes you wise. That is, it, it exposes as folly anti-Jesus. It exposes as wise every ache you have for heaven. It makes you wise, wise unto something. Sometimes we think of wisdom as having arrived. This is a wisdom unto something. Wisdom unto salvation. This is what the Bible has power to do. And no other book can do it like this. Any other book that does it is leaning on the Bible. If you got convicted through reading one of CJ's books or one of my books, that's because we said something from the Bible. It's the kind of book you should read, I think, is Bible-saturated books. Now, that's number uh, three, and number four is almost the same, but I separated them, and maybe you'll see why. So number four now, stay in what you have heard, continue in what you have learned and believe. One, knowing from whom you learned it. Two, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the holy, self-authenticating writings. And three, how they're able to make you wise for salvation. And now the, the fifth one, is, or the fourth one is, through faith in Jesus Christ. They make you wise unto salvation through Jesus Christ. So this simply makes explicit how the trajectory of that wisdom that the Bible alone can create terminates on the Savior, Jesus. In other words, Timothy, don't walk away from this book because if you walk away from this book, you're going to walk away from Jesus. This book is the connector between you and Jesus. You don't have any other connector that's going to work in this world as long as we are in this world with these brains, these eyes, this kind of heart, this kind of mind, and a book in front of us. To throw the book away is going to be to throw Jesus away. And so, Timothy, you don't want to do that. Sovereign grace, Louisville, you don't want to do that. You're... You don't worship this book. Don't let anybody get in your face. Oh, you're a bunch of bibliolaters. You just, just listen to that and feel sorry, okay? Just, just say, um, this book is precious to me. I would die for this book. I don't worship this book. This is just my only access with any authority to my king. So don't, don't mock my book. It's, it's like mocking a bridge, you know, like I worship the bridge. That's, I crossed the bridge. I want Jesus. We'll come back to that thought later. Number five. Continue in what you have learned and believed. 
because the scriptures are God breathed. Verse 14 and 16, let's read it again. Just keep mounting up these arguments. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. One, knowing it from whom you learned it. Two, how from childhood you have been acquainted with these holy writings. Three, how they are able to make you wise. Do something inside of you to lead you towards salvation. And four, to bring you square to Jesus Christ, the goal of them all, so you find salvation there. Number, 16, number, number five, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's one of the most important sentences in the Bible. All scripture is God-breathed, or we sometimes say inspired, but probably the ESV writers chose against the word inspired because we, we use the word inspired for secular performances of music. Oh, I was just inspired. And I'm okay with that. You'd, everybody knows what that means. It means there was just a lot of energy in it. There's just an unusual coming together of forces that made this song and this piece of music unusually powerful in my life. I'm okay with that. But if you confuse that <laughs> with what God did to make this, then you're confused, really confused. And so, and so it seems like they probably made a good decision here to be really literal with Theopneustos, God breathed. So this is God breathed scripture. Now let's deal with this issue. Clearly this is the Old Testament he's talking about. All right. New Testament doesn't exist yet. It's coming into being like <laughs> 2 Timothy. All right. And we are a people who have a book and, and, and that much of it isn't directly referred to in the text. So, okay, we got this one, but not this one in the text. I don't think you should think that way. Let me give you four reasons now under reason five. <laughs> I'm going to give you four reasons why by implication you should think New and Old Testament when you read the scriptures are God-breathed, even though when it was written, it was not the immediate intention because it didn't exist yet. So here's my four reasons for why you should now think that it implies both. Number one, when Jesus came, to whom the Old Testament pointed and was bringing Timothy for salvation, when he came, he spoke with an authority Above the Old Testament. You have heard that it was said, I say to you. Or, John 14.10, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So when Jesus speaks, the Father is speaking and working. This is a claim to massive authority. So 400 years of silence between Malachi and the Incarnation, and now Word. Hebrews chapter 1, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So this is new, right? This is a new situation on the planet. God has shown up in Jesus Christ. We would totally expect Word is happening. There was Word, prophetic Word, authoritative Word, 
until Malachi shuts down, God waits, and then the fullness of time, he speaks again, and the son is speaking. Now, what, what would you expect to happen now? What, what would that mean? He's, he's going to be here for a few years. He's going back. He's unleashing the church. The church is going to be built, built on the rock of Jesus. How would he do that? Would he just leave it up to us to figure out church and figure out the cross and figure out everything that's new? You know, you, you would doubt that. And you should, and you have warrant to doubt it. Here's number two. Jesus prepared his apostles to speak with divine authority, like the scriptures. For example, John 16, 13. When the spirit of truth comes, Jesus said to them, he will guide you into all truth. So now we have it made explicit that this authoritative spokesman about the new era and the the fulfillment of everything that had been written in the old, he's not going to leave it to chance. He's going to send his spirit and guide these 12 chosen apostles into truth. So that as they found the church, church built on the apostles and the prophets, he's going, to, he's going to help them be a solid, sure foundation. That's what he says he intends to do. We should be inclined to think that's what he did. And then when you get to the apostles, this is number three, argument number three. The apostles claimed to be speaking with inspired words like that. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. We impart this, this wisdom that we have from above, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. You can multiply texts like this from the Apostle Paul and his amazing claim to authority. Just amazing. If you won't receive us, you are not received. I mean, Paul laid claim, along with the other um, apostolic spokesmen, to an authority equal to the Scriptures. He says so. I am speaking inspired, spirit-breathed words. Do you see that? Let me read it again. We impart this. This is 1 Corinthians 2.13. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit. Words taught by the Spirit. We're speaking those words. We are providing the foundation. And now here's the fourth one. The apostles referred, Peter in particular here, referred to Paul's teaching as Scripture. 2 Peter 3.16 Some twist his letters as they do the other scriptures. So you take a deep breath and you say, okay, I get it, I get it now. God has provided a, an Old Testament to be an authoritative, inerrant, infallible, inspired record of his interaction with the world and with Israel. He has let the world go for 400 years before he spoke again. He brings his son into the world who speaks with an authority above Scripture, who then authorizes 12 men, who then in their speaking and teaching as teachers of the church do another chapter of Scripture, and then it closes and the, the canon is closed and we rest. We now rest. The faith once and for all delivered to the saints, we rest upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 
So, when I read this fifth argument, the Scriptures are God-breathed. Even though, in the immediate context, Paul is telling Timothy, don't walk away from the authoritative Old Testament Everything about the way he's teaching and the way he's thinking about the Christ and the way the the revelation has come would lead us to say, and to be faithful to God's overarching purpose and intention, we should hear the whole Bible is inspired by God. The whole Bible is God breathed. That's argument number number five. Let me say another word before I leave it. Contrast the way Paul talks about the inspiration of Scripture with the way Peter talks about it in first, Second Peter 1, 21. Peter says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter talks about men being inspired. Paul doesn't. Seeing differences deepens our appreciation of both. Doesn't question either. They were carried along. God was sustaining them, protecting them, keeping them from error, causing them to write out what he breathed forth. Paul speaks of the product of that process in 2 Timothy here. All grammata, all the words, all the writings, all the scriptures are God-breathed. So you've got men who are putting something on a parchment, and then you have what's there as they put it. That's God's word. These are God-inspired spokesmen. That's God's word. Now, at our church, I don't know what kind of confessions uh, you've got here. I haven't read the Sovereign Grace documents. But, but at our church, here is what paragraph 1, section 1 of the Bethlehem Baptist Church Elder Affirmation of Faith says. And this is just very historic. We've borrowed almost all this language from historic confessions. We believe that the Bible, consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, is the infallible Word of God. And then we use this phrase, verbally inspired by God and without error in the original manuscripts. A lot of people just get, what what do you use this language for? Verbally inspired original manuscripts. What's the point of that? That is simply an attempt to take seriously Paul's way of talking about the process of inspiration. Paul takes inspired men and then addresses his claim to the, the, the grammata of the writing, the writings. So when I say they are verbally inspired, I'm just trying to say what Paul said about the scriptures are inspired. Not just the men, but the scriptures. These words that we have here are God's words. That's what we're trying to preserve, stay in, conserve. And when it says in the original manuscripts, some people feel like that weakens things. I think it strengthens things. Because it says 
there really was a moment and a piece of paper and a pen and an action of God Almighty on a human being who actually put the mind of God on a piece of parchment. Stunning reality. This is not vague, kind of, oh, they were all, you know, close to God or something. This is a moment in time when the mind of God goes on to a manuscript and then to the degree that this book is faithful, we've got it. And the remarkable thing is, liberal scholars, to use the new language, and conservative scholars, to use the new language, all of them agree, we've got it. (laughs) I can tell you a story. I mean, I I studied in Germany for three years. Germany is not a hotbed of evangelicalism. (laughs) And so I was assigned with agreement that I would do my doctoral dissertation on uh, Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48, on the command, love your enemies. And I was going to try to uh, discern, uh, did it go back to Jesus? How is it affected in the oral process of transmission? How was it used in the epistles? And how did it make its way forward in the church? That's the way, if you're in Germany, you're going to write a dissertation. So the first doctoral candidates meeting I come to in Germany... I had done one month's worth of effort in textual criticism. Now, textual criticism is an effort just to discern, do we have the original wording? And I said, I'm I'm a scholar. I'm supposed to not take that for granted. I'm going to find out. So I wrote a 20-page paper on this paragraph using every critical resource I could get my hands on to argue we've got it. We've got the original words. So I read the paper to six doctoral candidates and Professor Leonard Goppelt. And when I was done, Goppelt sitting there the whole time, sometimes with his eyes closed, <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, no, no, maybe it's my English. Because they did let me read the paper in English, and all the discussion was in German. And, and, and so we got done, and I finished, and he said, Herr Pieper. <laughs> Herr Pieper, das ist sehr gut. Aber wir brauchen das nicht zu tun. We don't need to do that. We, and then he took his Alain's 26th edition of the Greek New Testament. He took it and said, we've got that. You don't need to do that work. Meaning, we, we high, cutting-edge, front-line, liberal German scholars, we don't even worry about that anymore. We've got it right here. This is what they wrote. What? I I thought I I thought I needed to do that here. (laughs) So I'm I'm saying that to the skeptics among you that well, yeah, but but you know, you say they're verbally inspired original documents and all that, but this is an English Bible. And I'm just telling you, you can go all over the world and find out. Even Bart Ehrman, I don't think. Although everybody thinks he's so, so far gone on the way he talks about this, is not going to say that any of the major doctrines are called into question by textual issues. But that's another issue. Didn't mean to take you there too far. That's number five. Number six. Where is number six? Um, seven, eight. I'm talking so much I'll lose my place. Sorry, right, here it is. Finally, continue in what you learned. 
and believe, Timothy 6, because the scripture is profitable, inestimably profitable. So verses 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, it's good for you. It produces, it produces really good things that, that uh, authenticate what it is. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Supremely profitable. So don't throw it away. Keep it. Stay in it. Let me reach for that word profitable uh, from another place in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Uh, I'm sure you know this verse. It says, bodily training is a little profitable. Same word. 1 Timothy 4, 8. Bodily training is a little profitable. Godliness is of value, thus profitable, in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So, eating right, sleeping right, exercising right is profitable, a little. Godliness is really profitable in every way, forever. Now, how does that relate to our text? Right here in verses 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy 3. Because that godliness is what the scriptures produce. You see that here? They are profitable for teaching. How, do, how does teaching work? It does three things. For reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Let me stop there. Let me draw that in the air. Look at, my, look, at, look at this. So here you are going the wrong direction. Thinking wrong about something. All right? Feeling wrong about something. Acting wrong about something. What does the scripture do with its teaching? Notice the sequence. Teach, it is profitable for teaching. Why? Because it reproves you. Right, that's, number, that's number one. Profitable for remeeting. Stop wrong way. You're going the wrong way. That's reproof. And then the second one is correction. So it turns you around. You turn on this issue. Okay? Whatever it is, sleeping with your girlfriend, stop. Bad idea. Don't do that anymore. Correction. And then, thirdly, it trains you in righteousness. And then it's described, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's the godliness that is so profitable in every way, back in chapter 4, verse 8 of 1 Timothy. Profitable in every way. The world really cares about whether one of the evidences of the truth of the Bible is whether it makes Christians good. And they should. They should. It, it produces good works. Doctrine. May, may this church be devoted to doctrine. That is, all the truths of the Bible that are designed for what? To equip you to produce a life of godliness and beauty and goodness, which will then circle back and authenticate 
the doctrine and the, the Bible. So the Bible aims to make you godly and in that profitability of producing a new kind of loving, humble service, life very much like Jesus, the Bible will show itself to be true. So don't leave it, Timothy. Well, there's the six arguments. Let me rehearse them. I'll just name them six. Number one, the character of the people who taught you the truth. Not it, that's not an infallible argument. It's a good one. I certainly would say that about my mother and father. I would look back and say, boy, I'd really be better. I'd, be, I'd better be really slow to walk away from what Bill and Ruth Piper taught me. Because Bill and Ruth Piper were of a cut that I don't see very often. Now, you may not have that argument. That's okay. You don't need all of them. You just need some of them. Number two, somebody taught it to you. Okay. Number two, the marks of divine holiness in the scriptures. Number three, the power of scripture to make you wise, to, to, to cause something to happen in your heart so that foolishness is seen as foolishness and wisdom is seen as wisdom and, and leading you on, leading you on to the climax, which is number four, the scriptures brought you to Christ. Number five, all scripture is God breathed so that the very words themselves are his words and and number six, the scripture is profitable. It's profitable because it empowers and enables you to perform the kind of good works or godliness that people look at and say, that needs an explanation. And the explanation is God in his word. So, how shall I close? Uh, here's one thing I want to say. And then I got... One or two other applications. Um, heads, of, heads of households in particular don't know the lay of the land here at all. I'm, I'm a stranger, but I, I feel this for myself as a dad still. I've got a kid who's 40 and 37 and 32 and 30 and 70. Amazing. What a spread. I've been parenting forever. <laughs> And, uh, and now that I, I know my 40-year-old and 37-year-old, I'm going to be parenting forever. <laughs> so, as the head of a household, I need to hear this. I care about putting food on the table for Noel and Talitha. I think that's my job. To work and be faithful to protect them and provide for them and so I want them to get the the food that will keep them healthy I want them to get the rest that will keep them healthy I want them to get the exercise that will keep them healthy I care about their bodies and my question then for you and me is do we care vastly more for their souls do we care about putting the the bread of heaven on the table. Those are of a little value for your wife and daughter. These are of value in every way. This book is of value in every way, forever. And if you pour all your energies into providing a house and a, a table and protection for them and think you've done your job and this is languishing on the shelf, you haven't done your job. You haven't loved them 
the way you ought. So I'm preaching to myself here because we struggle. We really struggle with how to do family worship and family devotions in a way that feels life-giving to a 17-year-old. And she's not a rebel. It's just a challenge. So that's one application. Let me give you a couple of others. And these kind of come out of, uh, out of our supper last night, Rick. Um, I'm lying there brooding over this conversation we had about our culture and where it's gone in the last years. Let me relate the Bible to the present state of American culture at, a, at one or two levels. There was a time, and it was just yesterday, historically speaking, when to be a Christian in a secular context meant you were stupid, foolish, naive, tolerable, good person. But, back on the head, you believe those myths, and we don't, and we'll get along. That day's over. You're not naive anymore. You're wicked. If you say what the Bible says about a few issues today, you're not naive, and you're not foolish, and you're not tolerable. You are intolerant, and you are evil. Now, here's my question. You can fill in the blanks there, I don't need to get on that. That's another sermon. I'd be happy to preach. I'm asking you, how are you going to endure that? And my answer is, Timothy, remain in what you have learned and believed. Because it is true. It doesn't matter. Though every man be a liar, God is true. Romans 3.8 takes a lot, of, a lot of arguments with a lot of supernatural persuading so that as you stand and the fists are raised or the eyebrows are raised, whichever scares you, you'll stand. So that's application number, number two. Number, th- number three is... You want to know God. And according to 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 Samuel 3, 21, God revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh through the word of the Lord. I love that verse. God revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh through the word of the Lord. Now, there were other kind of epiphanies in the Old Testament, right? Where an angel shows up or or a burning bush shows up or a light shows up or a cloud shows up. Normal showing up is right here. Normal showing up. And I want him to show up every day. I'm not going to wait for the extraordinary. Happy to receive it. Anytime he wants to get at me in an extraordinary way, not going to push it away. But I'm not waiting for the extraordinary. I want the extraordinary ordinary right here. Jesus 
This morning I get up, I got my agenda. One hour in the book. And not for you. It's for my hungry, desperate, sinful, needy soul. Every day in the book, listening. Speak to me. Reveal yourself to me. I need you. I'm not a bibliolater. This is my bridge to heaven. Would you get on it, Jesus? Come to me. So if you want him, don't go to the woods without your book. Go with your book. Woods are good. They are. The heavens and the woods are telling the glory of God. And that helps. But you get wrong messages if you leave the book at home. So that's number three. You want to commune with him? He wrote a book. You know what I mean now. And number three, this is so crucial, taking the cultural thing into account. Most of us who've grown up in an America that kind of felt, we felt at home, kind of, was, you know, the Protestant hegemony, which is kind of, to be a Christian was, can be normal in the 50s, right? Nobody, nobody thought, only the secular establishment would say you're foolish or you're naive, but everybody thought you're kind of normal. And those of us who remember that, can have emotional reactions to the new day when, say, our president will not even oppose kinds of abortion that are partial birth. Just get them, get them at six months, three-quarters of the way out, and stick a knife in their spine. He won't even oppose that. And then celebrates a lifestyle that the Bible says damns people. And my response, and you can hear it probably, is to get angry. Anger isn't going to save anybody. There is a holy anger. But if, if, if this church or the evangelical church in America now responds to the loss of our land. You know, it never was our land anyway, right? The, 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 lo- the loss of our influence or whatever. If we respond by bitterness and anger and retreat into our little circle, and we should have a circle where holiness is done. Churches should be wonderful places of sexual holiness. But my last point is, The Bible is written for your joy. And I'll just read you the key verse. John 15, 11. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. We were talking last night over dinner that one of the virtues that needs to be recovered, if you haven't already, in a world like ours is the virtue of hospitality where you don't, you you hate this world, hate my neighborhood, I hate the news, I hate TV, I hate movies, I hate the internet, because they're all so wicked. Well, you're not going to be of any use to anybody. (laughs) Even though I think that's all true. (laughs) It's just, there's just a, now what? Now what? And, And the now what is, we should be the happiest people on the planet. Yes. 
I mean, you've sung yes. the best news in the yes. world. We have a Savior. Yes. He's going to win. Yes. We should weep. Yes. We should weep yes. for our neighbors who are buying into the cultural drift that is not a drift. It's a tidal wave. Now, we should weep. And in our weeping, want them to have our joy, which is why we should open our tables. We should invite them into our homes. And they'll say, whoa. You're one of those. No, it's just, I want you to come. We can talk. So, these things are written that my joy, Jesus' joy, would be in you. And that your joy might be full. So, hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And be the happiest person in your neighbor.